Last weekend, we talked about spiritual blindness. We're going through the Gospel of Mark, and the writer of the Gospel of Mark is trying to show us, uh, kind of give us a, a pulse on how the disciples are doing and understanding who Jesus is. And so uh, it's, not, it's not a surprise that we're going to be talking about a man who is blind who is going to be healed by Jesus. And I think it's, Mark is making a statement about that. We'll talk about that. But let me just review where we were last weekend. We said that every one of us are born spiritually blind. That uh, we don't really seek God. We think we do, but we really don't. And until God opens our eyes, until, until God opens our heart, changes our heart, then we don't see and we don't know Him. And uh, it's something that we, you know, it, it's just, it is. We also talked about that Spiritual blindness isn't something that we lose just because we cross that line of faith and we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It would be nice to know that now our eyes will never be blind, but in the end we talked about we have uh, uh, spiritual stigmatisms that uh, affect us, or if you want to call them blind spots, things that we can't see. Uh, Others can see them, but we can't see them, and we'll always have them. And then the third thing we talked about last weekend was that we need help. As followers of Jesus Christ, we need help in getting our sight restored and getting these spiritual blind spots tackled. And we can only do that through community. We need other people that we can trust that would come up to us and challenge us about what's going on in our lives and how well we're seeing and things along those lines. So that's kind of where we went last week. And I want to pick it up this weekend. And we're going to be going to... Um, this uh, man who's born, uh, or this man who is blind, who Jesus heals, and then we're going to talk about Peter, who makes a confession about Jesus, which they're really tied together. And they're, they're, and again, I think it's Mark giving us a pulse on how are the disciples doing, and and are they making progress? Are they getting to understand who Jesus is and what his mission was? So I think you have the sermon guide. And if you don't, uh, you can uh, get one. And uh, but if we're going to go to uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 22. And so whether uh, you're, you join us online or whether you're at one of our campuses, uh, we're going to be in Mark, chapter 8, verse 23. And the first thing we want to look at, and this is in your notes, is the healing of the blind man. And this starts in verse 22. Let me read it, and then we'll talk about it. It's kind of an interesting story. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a man, a, a, a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And taking the hand of the blind man, he led him outside of the village. Then after moistening the eyes of the blind man with saliva and laying his hands on him, Jesus asked him, what do you see? Upon regaining his sight, he said, I see people walking, but I see them as trees. Then Jesus again put his hands on the man's eyes, and he saw clearly. His sight was restored, and every, he saw everything distinctly. And Jesus sent him to his home, saying, Do not go back to the village. Now, one of the questions we, we want to answer is, why, why did it take two miracles? or you know, Why did it take two touches of Jesus to heal this man? Because whenever we see Jesus healing somebody, it's like, it's like it happens, you know? And uh, this one didn't happen that way. 
And Jesus does what he normally does. He leads the man away from the crowds. In this case, he takes him outside of the city to get him away from the crowd. He moistens the man's eyes with his own saliva. And he lays hands on him and he asks the man, what do you see? So the man's healing is very interesting because it wasn't instantaneous. His sight was restored in stages. First, it says that he saw people as though they were trees. And then it says that Jesus went ahead and touched him again. And now he could see clearly. And the question is, why did he do it twice? And I think there's two potential reasons. Maybe they're both right. Uh, this my weighing in on it. And you could take it for whatever it's worth. Um, it's possible, and I think physically speaking, that what is going on here is that when you think about sight, the first, the first time that Jesus touched him, the man's eyes were open and he was able to see. But you know that seeing is more than just having eyes that function. You have to have a brain that interprets what it's seeing. Or ears, uh, when they're open, you need to have, the brain is able to understand what it's seeing. So it's some commentators have said that second touch the first touch was to open his eyes so he could see the second touch was to interpret what he was seeing what am i seeing and that's a possibility and i think that's that's a, a way to look at it but i think there's something more going on here and i think when you see where mark puts this story uh and last week we talked about the disciples and we said the 12 really aren't getting it they really aren't understanding who Jesus is. I mean, he's healing people. He's calming uh, storms. He's feeding people, 4,000, 5,000. He's uh, casting out demons. He's raising dead people. He's doing all sorts of these. He's, he's restoring uh, hearing and speech to a man. He's doing all these things, and the disciples are just not getting it. So this is going to be a turning point in the whole gospel because Mark is showing us that disciples are starting to get it. And that's where we are this weekend. The disciples are starting to get it. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when we look at uh, what's going on here, uh, we know that Jesus healed uh, a number of men. He healed, uh, he healed uh, a man, uh, he healed two blind men, he healed Bartimaeus. He healed a man who was born blind, blind from birth. Which, which is interesting to me. You know, let's just stop for a minute. And uh, the man who was born blind from birth uh, is it found in the Gospel account of John chapter 9. And these are all probably different, men, different people that he's healed. Because he healed multiple people, and blind and lame and, and dumb, and, uh, meaning they can't speak and can't hear. Um, so we know he did this. What's interesting about this is one day the disciples, <clears throat> when they saw the man before he was healed in John 9, they said, who sinned? Did, did his parents sin or did he sin? In other words, did he bring this on himself or did his parents bring it on him? And so the idea back then, and I think some people still hold it today, is that God punishes you for your sin. And so that this man was blind because he had done something wrong or his parents had done something wrong. And notice what Jesus says. It's very interesting. But, but uh, he says this. He says, as he went on his way, Jesus saw a blind man 
And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it is not that this man sinned or that his parents sinned, but it happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, why this is important, this whole healing of blind people and restoring sight and uh, hearing and and giving speech and having lame people get up and walk, take their mat and walk, this is all a fulfillment of Isaiah. We looked at it last week in 35, where it says this. And this is speaking of the coming Messiah. And so the question is, is who is Jesus? That's really what Mark is trying to get us to understand. Who is Jesus? And he's trying to get his disciples. He's trying, Mark's trying to say, who, does Je, did Jesus' disciples understand who he is? And so the, the prophecy in Isaiah says this, then, the, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. They will, the, then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. So this is a fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy. And so Jesus is doing these miracles for a reason. And this is really important today because sometimes there are people today who think that God heals people especially Christians, on demand. That God still does that. And He heals anyone who asks sincerely, I guess. But we know that's not true, don't we? Because most of us have prayed for people that we love and care for, and we've prayed earnestly for them, and they haven't been healed. So, And we know that Jesus didn't heal everyone. He walked away from a whole bunch of people that He didn't heal. What I'm saying is that Jesus' healing was purposeful, it was for a reason. So he takes this man out of the village, out of the public spectacle, because he wants this man to be healed, and he wants the man to remain quiet. He doesn't want to blab, a blab about it. Now we have an account of what he took place because Mark gives us that account. But going back to the John passage, Jesus answers his disciples. He says, notice what he said. He says, it's not that this man sinned or his parents sinned, but that this, it happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, what Jesus is saying, this is truly remarkable. He says, this man was born blind so that today when I heal him, you'll know who I am. Now, just, just imagine this. If you could before your birth and you have a conversation with God and God were to say, oh, by the way, you're going, you're going to grow up as a young boy and as a young adult until you get... I don't know how old this man was, 20 or 30 years old. And then you'll be able to see. But you're going to be blind most of your life. Most of us would say, you know, I don't think so. Yeah, There's probably someone else you could find that would really want to do that. I guess I'm just not your person. But that's what Jesus says. Now, this this is something that we probably don't want to hear. This man lived his whole life blind so that Jesus could come by one day and heal him. That's astonishing to me. And here's a hard lesson for American Christians to hear, and I hope that you'll hear this this weekend. We exist for God's glory, not our own pleasure. We exist for God's glory and not our own pleasure. Christians and churches today, I think, have come to a place where they feel that God is the cosmic genie, vending machine, whatever you want to call him, 
but God is there to serve us. And I think the way that we've gotten to that place is we have seen Jesus come, especially in the Gospel of Mark, as a servant, ready to suffer and die, and uh, to die on a cross for us. And we think, well, he's our servant. No, he's not. He's our Lord. He's God. We exist for his glory and not for our pleasure. So I think that's really important. And this is just one of the lessons we're going to look at this weekend. And I think that we have to relearn this lesson. Because this, this, this healing is for a purpose. And it's to show who Jesus is. That he's not our servant. Yes, he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. But he is Lord God. He is over all. And, 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 and so we have to understand he is the potter. We are the clay. And we often get this backwards, and we often operate as though Jesus exists to serve us. We are mis, misunderstanding who Jesus is when we have that view of God. He, he didn't come for that reason. So that's the first thing to see. And I think what Mark is doing here with this man is he's showing that Jesus is that Messiah. He's fulfilling the Isaiah passage, and Mark is showing us that the disciples are starting to get it. They're starting to see. This man didn't see immediately, but he's starting to see. So the two stages in my mind are the disciples. They're starting to. They're not seeing clearly yet, but they're starting to see. And that leads us right into Peter's confession of Jesus. Where Peter's going to make a confession about Jesus that is absolutely true, but he doesn't get what he's saying. So let's read that. That's the confession of Jesus. And that's point number two in your notes. And it starts at verse 27. And Jesus and his disciples went to the villages, onto the villages of Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he questioned his disciples, saying, Who do people say that I am? So they answered, saying, answered him, saying, John the baptizers, and others, Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, saying to him, you are the Christ, or Messiah. And he strictly warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then Jesus began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man. That phrase, Son of Man, is a key phrase. You might want to underline it. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the ruling priests and scribes and be killed and after three days to rise again. And he was speaking openly about this. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But after the turning... But after turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not thinking the thoughts of God, but those of men. A couple things that we just kind of glanced over that I want to make sure you understand. When we use the title, when we use the, the, the name Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. It's his title. It means Messiah. And so, Jesus, Messiah. It's Jesus the Messiah. That's his title. The other thing is, he uses this phrase, Mark uses this phrase, Son of Man. And Jesus used it for himself a lot. Son of Man was a messianic title. It was used of, in, the, in the Old Testament prophets of the one who would come and be the messianic figure that, that, that would bless all the nations. And so, Jesus uses that title of himself. Now, as we look at Peter's confession, it shows something very interesting. It shows that he's beginning to understand because what he says, what is Jesus? Now, we don't have this. Peter understands who Jesus is, 
but he doesn't understand why Jesus came. And they're both important, right? Uh, he, didn't, he doesn't understand why he came to earth. He understands who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. But he doesn't understand why he came. He is beginning to understand the identity of Jesus, but not the mission of Jesus. You see, Peter saw the mission of Jesus very different than what Jesus' mission actually was. Peter confessed Jesus as Messiah. And in that day, it was believed that the Messiah, or the Son of Man, would bring the kingdom of God, putting down all evil, opposition, and pain. That they saw that the Messiah would bring freedom to the oppressed and judgment to the wicked. So Peter, when he confesses Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of Man, you know, Jesus as the Messiah, and, and Jesus says, heaven and earth has revealed this to you. When he does that, Peter is thinking along the lines of this is the one who is going to bring freedom to the oppressed, the Jews, in other words, throw off Rome, and judgment to the wicked. That's what he's viewing. And now what has Jesus just said to him? The Son of Man must suffer and die, <laughs> right? So this doesn't sound like what they expected, what Peter expected. Now in Matthew's account, and we don't have that to look at tonight, but it says this, and you could just look at uh, verse 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 17, where Matthew does the same thing in this confession. But it's, he adds something that Mark doesn't. He says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, that's Peter, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by Father in heaven. In other words, what he's saying is very significant. He's saying, Peter, you are speaking the very words of God. Your tongue is speaking the very words of God right now. You are absolutely correct. And this isn't something you came up with. My Father put this truth in your heart. You're absolutely correct. And Jesus accepts this uh, Peter's confession and immediately begins to teach them the heart of his mission. And what was the heart of his mission? To die on a cross. And this was not well received by Peter. So you can imagine Peter, he, he says, you know, he says, well, who do people say? Well, some say you're this, some say you're this. Well, who do you say that I'm? Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, heaven, and heaven has revealed this, Peter. You're right on the money. And Peter must have been going, good job, Peter. And all the disciples go, I wish I had said that, you know. <laughs> and then Peter does what we've all done. He says, well, now I think I got this thing figured out. And it's like the first stage, right? The man is healed and he sees people like trees, but he doesn't really see yet, does he? Peter couldn't conceive of a Messiah, the Son of Man, that he should come and suffer. And it did, this concept didn't fit his belief system. He had other ideas, which were, of course, wrong. And Jesus is going to inform him of that. Now, what's interesting here is one minute, notice Peter is speaking the very words of his Father in heaven. And the next, he's uttering the lies of Satan from the pit of hell. Because what does Jesus say to him? 
when Peter goes to him, so Peter makes this confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, and Jesus says, you're speaking the very words of my Father in heaven. You're speaking words from heaven, from my Father in heaven. And then Peter pulls him aside and said, over my dead body are you going to die? Over my dead body are you going to go to the cross? And Jesus turns and says to him, get behind me, Satan. How is it possible that somebody could speak the very words of God one moment and can there be much of a time gap between those two statements of Peter? Probably not. Let's give him 10 minutes. It's probably less than five. He pulls Jesus aside and says, over my dead body, essentially. He says, no, I won't allow it. Even in the garden, Peter's pulling a sword out still, right? And, and, and so what happens here, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Now, that bothers me. It doesn't bother me that Peter did it. It bothers me that I do it. Now, what do I mean by that? How is it possible that Peter could so unwittingly be used by Satan when merely moments before he was speaking the very words of God? What we have to understand is our members, our hands, our feet, our tongues can be used either for good or evil. They can be either energized by heaven or they can be empowered from hell. Peter, Peter's were. The point I want you to, this is the question I really want you to think about. This past week, has your tongue been a servant of Jesus or a tool of the devil? That's, that's a problem, isn't it? Do you realize what, what, is, what he's saying here is that one minute you could say the most theologically, biblically accurate thing in the world praising God and the next minute out of that same mouth you can say things and lies awful things from the pit of hell James kind of says that out of the same spring you don't get bitter and sweet water (laughs) I don't like that I don't like the fact that that's true in my life, and if you're honest, it's probably true in your life. And as you think back in the last week, can you think of times where one minute you're giving praise to God, you're acknowledging Him, you're, you're speaking positive words, and the next minute, the power of the pit is empowering your words. It's a problem. So you may be listening right now and you say I don't feel like I'm getting encouraged right now this is kind of hard first you come and you say that 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 he is God and we're here to serve him not for him to serve us that he is the king and we are he's the potter and we are the clay okay now you're telling me that my tongue can be used for good and be empowered from heaven or from the pit of hell within moments. Yeah? So, so five boys and 
Sometimes your kids need, and they probably need other things, but there's two main things they need. Sometimes they need a kick in the butt, right? And sometimes they need an arm around the shoulder, right? Sometimes you just need to let them know that it'll be, it'll be all right. Encourage them, right? Sometimes you just need to give them a kick in the butt. This is a kick in the butt sermon. It's not an arm around your shoulder. I hope you feel better. God bless you, okay? Because this could get worse, all right? So just so you know where we're going in this message, because this is where the text is taking us. It's saying to us that we've got issues, if we're going to be honest. In other words, what I'm trying to do this weekend is I'm trying to help you see from the Word of God, which is a mirror, because too often what we want to do is we want to get a telescope or binoculars. We want to look at other people's flaws. Oh, look at that. Look at that. Look at that. You know, this would be a great, some of you are thinking that, all right, this would be a great message for fill in the blank. I need to tell them they need to listen to this message. It's great for them. But you haven't looked in the mirror. This is looking in the mirror time, okay? All right, so how here's three questions that we we need to prayerfully so we're going to close with these three questions rather quickly how do we how do we deal with these blind spots how do we deal with these issues that we can't see ourselves that maybe i pointed out a couple of them today that we're treating jesus as our cosmic genie rather than as lord and god that our tongues can be used for giving praise to God and blessing to others, but we can also just destroy people with them within moments. Here's three questions that I would hope you would prayerfully consider. The first one is this. Are you willing to admit that you don't see clearly? And this is simply, are you willing to humble yourself? If you're not willing to humble yourself, you just expect that your sight is going to get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. You have to come to a place where you realize that you have this problem with your spiritual sight, and you need others to help you do it. So the first thing is, are you willing to admit that you don't see clearly? Secondly, am I willing to accept the Word of God as final authority by obeying it, even if I don't like what it says? I talked a little bit about this last week, and I don't have much time to go into it. But all I'm saying is this. You have to decide what your final authority is on all matters. Is it going to be the Word of God? Is it going to be God's Word? Or are you going to be the final arbitrator of truth in your life? And I said last weekend, if you're the final arbitrator of truth, if you're the final decision maker of what is true and what isn't true, what is right, what isn't right in your life, you're in big trouble. You are. So that means that we need to be students of the Word. We need to open the Word of God up. We need to read it on a regular basis. We need to allow it to be a mirror, and we need to speak to our hearts. Now, what, how do we do that? How do we do that? The first thing is, the problem that Peter had was he got who Jesus was, but he didn't get what Jesus came to do. In other words, he didn't like what Jesus said about what his mission was. And that's the problem we have. We understand what the Word of God is saying about what we should or shouldn't be doing. We get that. The problem is we don't want to do it. Or we want to say, I don't believe that, that I, I don't agree with that. <laughs> Something like that. That's essentially what Peter's saying. Well, that doesn't fit my view. I don't agree with that. And Jesus says, well, get behind me, Satan. Okay? So, 
The question is, am I willing to accept the Word of God as my final authority by obeying it even when I don't like what it says? Now, what are some passages, what are some things where the Word of God says things that you don't like? Well, I happen to have a few. Again, this isn't one of these. It's one of these, okay? Just so you know, all right? Here's some examples so we can be crystal clear of what I'm talking about. This is like... No, I'm not going to say that because I'm going to get into trouble with dentists. But uh, anyway, we won't won't even bring that up. All right, so so what I'm giving you now is I'm going to give you true statements that are in Scripture that are true, but sometimes we don't like it. But, But it doesn't matter whether we like it or not. We have a responsibility to obey it. All right, so here's the first one. Jesus is the only way to find forgiveness for your sins. Now, I'm assuming that most of us in this audience or maybe even uh, at the other campuses, uh, the other campus, uh, or even join us online, most of us might say, well, I don't really have a problem with that. Uh, but there are a lot of people that have a problem with that because that goes counter because the popular belief is it doesn't really matter who you believe or what you believe. We'll all get to the end, just take different paths up the same mountain. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, John 14, 6. You can write uh, Matthew eleven twenty seven down, uh, John five twenty three down, and look at those at your leisure. Let me give you another one. And this is a very hot topic in our culture. And uh, it, it, within Christian community, there's kind of like, yeah, I know we shouldn't, but eh, it's not, mm, you know, it's not a big deal. And here it is. Sex outside of a committed commitment of marriage is destructive and sinful. Sex outside of a committed marriage is destructive and sinful. And, and we tend to pick on different groups. We say, well, homosexual sin is really bad sin. But premarital sex between two uh, people who love each other is it's, it's not... I'm sorry. That's not what I read in Scripture. What I read in Scripture is this, any sex outside of a committed marriage is destructive and sinful, period. There's no wiggle room there. I, I know our society says, well, that's old-fashioned, that's, you know, that was then, this is now. Okay. Uh, here's a couple of verses you might want to write down and consider. Mark chapter 7, verses 21 and t- through 23. Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20. Okay, so let's just be clear. This is something that people that we're, you know, we're saying this is what the Bible says, but I know it says that, but I don't like it. And I don't know if I want to obey. Let me give you another one. This is one that I guarantee you every one of us doesn't like. Here it is. Forgiving people who have wronged me is a requirement, not an option. Forgiving people who have wronged me is, is not an option. It's a requirement. You don't get to say, well, I don't feel like it. They weren't, they, you don't know what they did. You, this, again, you have to say, is this the word of God? Is this my final authority? And is he Lord over all, over me? Let me give you some verses here because Jesus talks a lot about this. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. 
Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Forgiving people who have wronged me is a requirement, not an option. See, what I'm showing you here is these are things that we, we this is the truth. If, if the word of God is to be believed, if, if this is our final authority, then we don't have an option to say, well, I don't like that one, so I guess I won't obey it. You don't get to choose. Let me give you another one. This will bother some of you. God wants my tithe. He doesn't want a tip or my leftovers. God wants a tithe. A tithe is 10% of your income. He doesn't want a tip or leftovers. So let me give you some verses on this. Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 through 10. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. 2 Corinthians 9, 11. 2 Corinthians 9, 11. Now, all I'm saying here is this. And you say, well, you're just picking out the real hard ones. Well, I'm picking out some of the hard ones because I'm trying to make a point but I could find 20 or 30 more that we say, well, I don't think I like that one, so I don't know if I'm going to obey that one. You don't get that choice. Listen, do you think I like them any more than you? Do you think that when somebody says or does something that's hurtful to me, that I immediately go, oh, thank you, Lord, may I have more? (laughs) No. (laughs) Do you think I jump to, okay, Now I have to immediately forgive this person. I have to work through it, man, just like you. Let me give you another one. And this is one I think it's, 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 I guess the best way to put it is, it's one of those that we hang on to, but it's hard to hang on to when we're in the middle of trouble. And here it is. Our time in heaven will make even the biggest sorrow on earth worth it. Our time in heaven will make even the biggest sorrow here on earth worth it. When we're in heaven looking back, the biggest sorrow that we have on earth will be a blip. And most of you, I think, who have been through rough times say, I hope so. Let me give you some verses for that because maybe that's what you need to hear this weekend. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. And Romans 8, 18. Romans 8, 18. Now that's just five. Those are truths that we don't want to hear. But we have to hear them. We need to hear them. We must hear them. And we don't just need to hear them. We need to do something about them. We need to act on them, not just hear them. Jesus said this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, when you don't do the things I commanded you to do? Good question. All right, here's the third point of how to cure, help us cure or get back our spiritual sight. Uh, So we have to admit that we have a problem. We have to acknowledge that the Word of God is going to be the scalpel that God uses. Maybe that's a bad way to put it, but that He's going to bring these things up to deal with some of the junk in our lives that we have to get right with Him. 
All right, number three, will I obediently become part of a Christian community to assist me in seeing my spiritual blindness? You can't do this alone. You need to be part of spiritual uh, Christian community. And, And what I mean by that is you need to have people, you have to have your people, your people that are willing to tell you the hard things, to, to tell you what they see that you can't see, to point out things that you don't want them to point out. You have to have people in your life like that. Just being together in rows on the weekend isn't going to cut it. You have to get in circles. You have to get face-to-face over coffee, or you have to have those hard conversations with one another. This is how it takes place. God created the church for this type of community. I want to close with just one thought. Peter's confession of Jesus pushes each of us to make our own confession about Jesus. Jesus says, well, who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're you know, one of the prophets. Some say you're this. Some... And he says, well, who do you say? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's what Peter confessed. And Jesus, it says, accepted his confession. So what does that make Jesus? If somebody were to say to you, not just you're a good person, but you're God, you go, what? No, seriously, you're God. You would go, okay, no, I'm not. I'm not God. And I don't know why you're saying that about me. And it's awkward, and I wish you would stop, right? But what does Jesus do? He embraces it. Why? Because he is. So there's only, and I, you know, you've heard this before, there's only three possibilities. To accept this confession of Peter, he either had to be a liar. In other words, he's lying to them and trying to get them to believe something about him that he knows he is not. In other words, he's playing a game with them. He's, he's saying, I want them to believe that I'm the Messiah, even though in my own mind, I know I'm not. So he's either a liar or he's a lunatic, meaning that he's deranged, he's kind of crazy, and you've probably met people who, you know, they're from a space station somewhere, or they're, they're just They're just kind of crazy. Or the third possibility is he's exactly who he says he's Lord. We have to determine that for ourselves. Each and every one of us has to make a confession like Peter. Who is Jesus? I read articles all the time, the TH, other papers, and some of the people they interview, especially on Saturdays, he was a good teacher, he was a rabbi, he was a good man. Learn a lot of lessons from him. Okay, those are all true. And I think many of those people say, but he's not Lord. He's not God. Peter says, oh yeah, he is. And Jesus, he himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What kind of person makes that statement? It's either somebody who's lying or somebody who's crazy or somebody who is who he said he is. In this community, we believe the third option, that he is Lord. Do you? 
That's where it all begins. You have to determine who Jesus is. If he's just a rabbi, just a teacher, just a good person, that's nice, but that's not enough. There has to be a point where you say, Jesus, you're Lord, and you step across that line by faith, and you say, Jesus, you gave your life to me. Now, being Lord of the universe, I want you to be Lord of my life. I give my life to you. Have you ever done that? Have you ever called upon the Lord? The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Can you do that? Have you done that? 